everyone. Welcome to another Your Amigos Legends podcast. I'm here with Celeste Simon, who's actually in my office at Vanderbilt. This is the first podcast, I think, ever that I've had the guest next to me. Uh, I've had Tom next to me during a podcast, which is distracting, but this is the first time with the guest. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Tom actually jumped in a pool when we did a podcast together. It's a long story, but that is true. Um, so this is part of our legend series where we talk with um, established leaders in the field uh, across GU disciplines. And Celeste has been a leader in kidney cancer and, and basic science for many, many years. That's why she's here giving a talk. Um, so Celeste, welcome. I'm going to turn it over to you. I'm going to have you just briefly introduce yourself with whatever titles you'd like, and then maybe talk about, um, you and I overlapped at University of Chicago now many, many years ago, um, but maybe talk about that and how you got your start and sort of, you know, what what drew you to kidney cancer. Hey, great. Well, thanks very much for having me. Um, so I had uh, a faculty position um, at the University of Chicago from 1992 to 1999 and got an opportunity to get sort of a help get a fledgling new cancer center at the University of Pennsylvania off the ground. Um, that's now known as the Abramson Cancer Center uh, at UPenn. Um, and I have a couple of hats there. I'm the director of one of the research institutes there, but I'm also one of the associate directors in the cancer center, which are positions that I really uh, enjoy most days. Um, and how did I get into what I'm doing now? Um, you know, it's always largely by chance. Um, when I went to the University of Chicago, um, I was uh, kind of among the first people that could make gene-targeted mice. And um, I was getting a phone call a week, if not a day, to help people make knockout mice and their gene of interest. Uh, and a nice man named Chris Bradfield asked me to go to lunch and he wanted to talk about this um, new family of factors called BHLH pass proteins that look like environmental sensors. I wanted to understand their complex biology. So one thing led to another. We made mice that lacked hypoxia inducible factors and you know for quite a few years after that uh, explored what happened to mice. Um, that didn't have any one of a number of the uh, the factors in a large number of different uh, biological contexts. Uh, how did I get into kidney cancer? Well, we were convinced that HIFs were going to be central to tumor progression, and I still believe that that's the case. But our mouse knockouts were confusing, and that's when we realized, you know, there was one cancer that must be really dependent on HIF. And that's, of course, clear cell renal cell carcinoma with BHL mutation. So I started working on um, kidney cancer almost 20 years ago um, at uh, UPenn. Um, and uh, we started collecting patient samples and uh, analyzing their uh, biochemical properties, including their metabolism. And we're still working on that to this day. So, so let's talk about the early days of HIF. You and I were chatting before we started recording how we were told it's not druggable, and I'm sure the funding was not ample at the time. And maybe the, it, you know, broadly speaking, you know, that, you know, for an early career investigator who's struggling to get funding or is working in an area that's not popular, right? How do you navigate that? Well, you know, we were lucky because we were really just trying to understand the, um, the, the natural biology and outputs of these proteins. 
Um, and it was becoming increasingly clear that they were going to be central to cancer progression, tumor microenvironment. But uh, I think this is a good, um, uh, you know, instructive comment is that things don't work and will never work until they do. You know, so when I was a uh, PhD student, we were told you could never drug protein-protein interactions, protein-DNA interactions. And so uh, certainly drug companies, but even the NIH were like, well, you know, that's great, but, um, you know, how are we ever going to drug it? So is this really useful? Uh, I think the way I got around that was I was at the time applying for grants from um, entities other than the National Cancer Institute. I was able to go to the other institutes like NHLBI or um, general medicine who were just more interested in them from the perspective of important biology. Uh, but I think the message is, um, and this is really germane to everybody today, you'll be told constantly that what you're doing will never work. And then when it does work, they go, yeah, good, well done. <laughs> so you just have to hang in there. I tell Tom constantly that what he's doing. Yeah, and people are <laughs> correct about my work. But the key, I guess, is for me, a couple of things. Why? Um, because HIF has become pretty fashionable in kidney cancer, and we can talk about that in a second. There was a press release recently for Belzutifan, and we should come to that. But question one, just give a little bit of a background about what, what HIF is, why it's relevant, and also a little bit about why you were told it was not targetable and how it became targetable. Certainly. So um, this is near and dear to my heart. Um, it was 1995 that Nobel laureate Greg Semenza biochemically purified and molecularly cloned the two proteins that constitute hypoxia-inducible factors. And um, Greg and another Nobel laureate, Peter Ratcliffe, a nephrologist, were really interested in it because it looked like it regulated a key cytokine erythropoietin. Um, but pretty quickly, it was becoming clear that it actually had uh, a broader output and is probably central to how cells, tissues, and organisms adapt and respond to a very important things that, that can happen to you, which is lack of oxygen. Um, and so HIF actually coordinates a huge transcriptional response to reduced oxygen levels. We call this hypoxia. And it's important to point out that hypoxia is a key feature of uh, most um, uh, diseases, uh, cancer being a great example. And so it was obviously a very attractive potential target. But, you know, back in the 1990s, we didn't have a way to disrupt protein-protein interactions or protein-DNA interactions. I'll tell you what we did, though. We were fascinated by the idea, and this is how we began working on it, that molecular oxygen could actually be an organizing principle for early development. You know, the early embryo is quite naturally low O2, um, and, you know, does responses to oxygen uh, impact uh, blood vessel growth, heart formation, placentation, early hematopoietic stem cell production? And we're able to show that by making um, gene-targeted mice. Um, so that really um, led to I think a deeper understanding of their central role in areas of biology that we didn't predict. And frankly, that was how I ended up at UPenn. The person that recruited me there said, you know, um, 
hypoxia and hips are going to be important in cancer. Uh, and even if we can't drug it now, maybe we'll drug it uh, someday. And so I was recruited to Penn. So was it just technology change then? That, I mean, was it just development of technology that allowed it to be druggable? Was it just... That's, that's yeah. definitely the case. Um, you know, and again, I think this underscores uh, the fact that scientific achievement can take many, many years. So the heroes, in my opinion, in the Bill fan story... It's not me, is it? It's not me. I'm guessing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're among them. Uh, uh, The people I was going to mention at the moment uh, were Rick Bruick, Kevin Gardner, and uh, Steve McKnight at UT. And they were taking the idea that, you know, if we really look at um, biochemical properties of the HIFs, in particular HIF2, you know, I bet we could get there more rapidly. Well, 10 years go past. And uh, they eventually do get to something by, uh, as you mentioned, improved technology, improved medicinal chemistry, improved high throughput screening, um, and that spun out Peloton. And uh, and then uh, Peloton was bought by Merck for some billions of dollars. And the people I mentioned at the beginning of this discussion are now in uh, good shape financially. I'll just put it <laughs> can that I, way. Can I ask a question? It- it sounds to me like there have been moments in your career where there didn't appear a clear way, clear way forward, but you persisted through that. I guess, you know, like walking through a forest at night without a clear destination, hoping to come out the other side. How did you get through those times and how did you know there was going to be light at the other end of the forest? Well, you know, um, I actually wrote an essay on this for Nature Cell Biology uh, that I can share with anybody that's interested. But uh, there was a series uh, in Nature Cell Biology that featured women scientists. And a number of colleagues and friends, you know, wrote about how their careers were great and just kept getting better all the time. And I decided that it was time for a different narrative. And in this essay, which I'd be happy to provide to anybody, I talked about all the times I almost quit. Um, and the list is long. Um, I almost quit chemistry in college. I almost quit graduate school multiple times. Um, I think the pivot for me was uh, in my second year as a postdoc at Harvard when we were trying to get gene targeting in mice uh, off the ground. And um, it was two years in, we were getting absolutely nowhere. And I told my husband, that's it, I'm out, I quit. And he said, no, let's take a week off and take a step back. And I came back and the last ditch experiment I had set up finally worked. And I learned that in a year, things can really change. And I actually went on the job market and I ended up in academia where I am today. So I think the message is that, um, you know, and everybody and I'm facing it now. And some of the things we're trying to do all these years later, I think you have to persist. Um, You have to try things. It may be that if you look if you're really facing what seems to be an insurmountable obstacle, one approach you could take is to put that line of investigation aside and go to something else and maybe fresh eyes, new technological developments, which by the way, our technology is now changing at a pace I never dreamed of in my earlier time as a scientist. So if you're really stuck, my advice would be to put it aside maybe take a vacation for a week and then um, investigate another path um, and either 
you'll get a new idea or some new technological development will come your way and you can come back to it. So what kept you going during those times, right? You said you almost quit, almost quit, almost quit. So if you could identify a factor to why you didn't. And then the second part of that question is, when did you know you were going to be successful? Right. When did you think, OK, I can do this? Was it the first R01, the first this? When did you say, you know what, I can actually not just do it, but be successful? Well, I think um, what sustains you through those times are your important relationships with family, friends, and in particular, mentors. Uh, you know, I think mentorship is key. Uh, I think in all honesty, when I was a trainee, uh, emphasis on the importance of good mentorship was not what it is today. And I think that's a fabulous development. I mean, I I uh, view my position not only as a lab head, but an institute director of how to support people through the tough times, because they will certainly uh, come. Um, I'm sorry, what was the second part of the question? When did you know you were going to be successful? Was there a, a grant or a day or an achievement, a paper where you said, man, I'm actually pretty good at this. I, I'm a... <laughs> I think that day will come when I retire. Uh, I'll tell you a few times that uh, gave me some hope. Um, remarkably to me, uh, in 1994, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute uh, had their first national competition. Um, it was a different mechanism for appointing HHMI investigators. And so I put together my uh, proposal about how I was going to study oxygen as a organizing principle in development and that it was going to be key to how stem cells behaved and things like that. And for some lucky reason, the review panel thought this was kind of interesting. So I was named an HHMI investigator. For one day, I felt great. And then the next day, I was like, oh, my God, the expectations are huge. <laughs> but I managed to stay in for about 20 years. Uh, and that was... Um, Wonderful, but everybody who's an HHMI investigator will tell you, honestly, the pressure is very high. But that was uh, encouraging and the renewals were encouraging. Um, but, um, you know, I guess uh, at this point, as luck would have it, I do have uh, uh, an array, a portfolio of grant funding that's making me feel financially secure uh, and that helps. But um, I think you're always pushing and trying to be better and, you know, can we really move the needle and really be on the leading edge? And that is a challenge that never goes away. So there's I would say paradox. I still feel that. There's a paradox out there around, um, you know, we, we read in, in journals about people who, uh, the really successful people who focused on one specific issue over a lifetime and they battled and battled and in the end won a Nobel Prize. We read about that, but that's not everyone. And then at the other side, the other extreme, you have the, you know, the saying that if you're not successful the first time, do something else that you're good at instead. Um, where's, where do you sit with, with these two? Is there a time when you need to be able to just say, listen, it's time for me to move on or, are you better off actually with multiple shots on goal, hoping that one's going to hit? And how do you balance that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because uh, a couple of my mentors and some very, very close friends who are super successful have found a way to stick with one biological problem, but reinvent what they're doing with it over and over and over again to stay on that leading edge and you know breaking new ground. Um, 
Other close friends of mine um, have actually taken the opposite approach. They completely reinvent themselves in what they're doing and how they're approaching. Um, in fact, uh, the person, I hope it's okay to say his name, but the person that recruited me to Penn, Craig Thompson, um, is a big proponent of every decade, stop what you're doing, take a new path, you know, it's refreshing, it's energizing. My point is either either way can work. Um, I think, but there's also a point that a lot of times people reinvent themselves fundamentally. Maybe they stop doing bench research and become administrators. Maybe they stop being administrator and actually become a full-time educator. Uh, and those things can work too. I just think it's where you find your passion and what really energizes you. You know, we all know doing this, like most rewarding careers, takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of time, takes a lot of single-mindedness. And if you're, I guess the best advice I could give is if those 70-hour work weeks aren't giving you much joy, <laughs> then maybe try something different. So maybe a balance between, you know, pursuing one goal in one avenue, but also realizing that you do need to reinvent yourself, right? Right. If you're long enough, the science is going to change, the rewards are going to change, the grant mechanisms, and, and maybe it's you know, time to move on. And I think I think entering a new area can reinvigorate your career. Totally. After you've been at it for a while and at it, I think then something new comes up. And I think that's why people naturally do it. Right. I mean, I'm super, could, oh, go ahead. I'm super excited about knowing your gold, silver and bronze moment in your career. So what was the, like, what was the third best moment, the second best moment? And what was that <laughs> pinnacle, that thing you said? You know, I look back on in my career and that was the moment when I was most, you know, that was the moment I was most enlightened by the work that the team around our, around our, we achieved. It could be your own work. It could be someone else's work. What were those golden moments in your career that you look back on most positively? Well, there were days when I was glad that I didn't get fired. Um, <laughs> those so those are golden good. days. I have those a lot as well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, um, there is one day I can remember um, quite distinctly coming back to this idea that, you know, molecular oxygen could really be pivotal to mammalian embryonic development. So we made mice that lacked any HIF and we uh, could tell that they were not uh, being born. Um, and so we started looking at their developmental progression. And sure enough, um, we were able to get to a time point where we saw the hip deficient embryos and they lacked exactly what we were hoping for. They didn't have blood vessels. So that was kind of a eureka moment where, um, you know, we, we realized that uh, this idea that, you know, oxygen um, availability could be fundamentally important to um, basically the entire oxygen delivery system postnatally. So that was, um, you know, for me, quite exciting. I mean, another day, of course, I'll never forget this, is um, October 7th, 2019, I opened up the New York Times, and there's three friends, uh, Peter Ratcliffe, Bill Kalin, Greg Semenza, staring up at me, the uh, 2019 recipients of the Nobel Prize. And then, you know, because that's hugely uh, exciting, and I, I had two days of fielding questions from, you name, you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal about, you know, why was this important, et cetera, et cetera. And then I got an, I got an email from the Nobel Committee saying, 
would you be interested in coming to Stockholm in December? I'm like, is this a trick question? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Of course I'm coming. So that was, uh, th- those were, were, I would say those are all pretty that's, golden. That sounds like three gold, three gold medal moments. Oh, believe me, I, but I've had a lot of lead moments too. I'd so. like to hear, I'd like to hear about one of those lead moments. One of those moments, but not just something that didn't work, but something that you felt was more than that. Something that was, you know, an existential issue, something that, was either unjust or something that should have worked that didn't work or someone who let you down a, a moment you look back on your career and said you know that was something which uh which you know which which has come on to, which i continually sort of haunts me a little bit brian has dozens of them in his career but you've, <laughs> it's another show <laughs> well i guess for me um you know i had many of those until i i was able to start running my own lab um i think an important thing for people to remember is that Brand new labs are are very fragile things. You know, you have a new investigator that, frankly, back at the time had no idea what they were doing. There's better mentoring um, approaches now that overcome that at this time. But back then, you were basically shown an empty room and told, all right, go to it, make us proud. And, you know, you start trying to build it, you know, raise. It's like launching a new business, raise capital, hire people. And those first seven years were really tough. I had to hire technicians. I had to fire technicians. I, um, you know, trying to convince graduate students and PhDs, uh, postdoctoral fellows to put their trust in me with their careers. And, you know, a couple of experiments were spectacular failure. And you begin to worry that your trainees don't trust you. Um, and so those there was a couple of years where I wondered if our lab was going to fold and that was going to be it. Um, and those I think those exist for everybody when they start a new lab, frankly. So so as we talked about a lot for you, challenges and overcoming them. Do you think as a as a female you had extra challenges that you had to overcome? And what, what were they? Yes, and I, I had challenges, but I also had uh, lucky breaks. So, you know, when I entered uh, a master's program at Ohio State University, there were no women anywhere. If I walked down the hall, people assumed I was an administrative assistant called secretary back then. Um, but, you know, the, the number of women in training that steadily grew. When I was on the job market in 1992 uh, for a faculty position, I went to many departments that had no women. Um, on the other hand, um, it wasn't all bad because these departments were uh, mandated to become more diverse. I don't think that's the only reason why I got a job. But, you know, back then, the diversity element, which we still need to address in a meaningful way, has also benefited me because, you know, I think I had the same credentials as uh, other uh, candidates, and this is in particular for HHMI, but they really wanted to add at least a few women to a very male organization. And so I benefited too. Um, so it's a yin yang. And I think um, I'd like to say that uh, women have, uh, you know, moved beyond this, but there are so many other people uh, that haven't. And we need to pay attention to other groups that are vastly underrepresented in science and medicine. What advice would you give to someone who was thinking of, you know, got a medical background, not a basic science background, but they want to go into translational science? have landed themselves a role in a basic science lab what would you give advice to a doctor who's been kind of busy doing doctoring work and now finds himself in basic science 
Well, I think, um, you know, you have to realize that you're now in an entirely different world. You may be the world's best clinician, but you're now basically a first year graduate student and be open to that and understand that this is a very different uh, skill set that you're likely to be, uh, you know, uh, you have intrinsic uh, aptitude towards. But um, I would say um, put aside your your clinical, uh, you know, uh, record and uh, kudos and remember that everybody has to start somewhere. Um, and that would be advice I would give. So my my last question, Tommy, you have one more. My last question, I want to go back to mentoring. You know, it's something we, like you said, I think we as a field do a better job now, but not a perfect job. It's an aspect that's important to Tom and I, and we try to promote through this platform and other things. Um, are, are there enough good mentors out there? How do you be a good mentor? And, and for the mentees, how do you find one? You know, what are the characteristics? Right. Um, so, you know, when I was a PhD student, nobody even said the word mentoring. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think the good news is the NIH in particular is really paying attention to this. I'm beginning to understand that if you're on a training grant or any grant from the NIH, you're going to have to document that you have been to mentoring workshops. Now, because I've been running a lab over 30 years and I think over 100 people have come through my lab, I'm a little bit indignant that I need mentoring training, but I'm sure there's always something to learn. Um, I just think it's now uh, recognized how critical this is. Uh, that, you know, kind of the sink or swim approach I was uh, treated to <laughs> as a PhD student, I won't say where, uh, and uh, that that's really changed. And, you know, now there's really a formal uh, processes in place for PhD student mentoring, uh, postdoctoral fellow mentoring, junior faculty mentoring now have mentoring committees uh, that I think everybody benefits from. And I think just by sitting on these committees, I can revisit things I've done and decide how I can do it better. Um, this has been um, this has been fantastic. I've loved this. You know, it's been really interesting for me. And uh, I just wanted to say thanks so much for sparing the time. It's been really fascinating. And I'm really grateful. My pleasure. Nice to chat with you guys. Thanks, Celeste.